Hello and welcome to another conversation in anthropology at Deakin, everybody's favourite podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. I'm David Border-Giles, I'm a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University and sitting beside me as ever is the boundless font of grace and insight, my co-host Timothy Neal, a senior research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. Today, as you've come to uh, know and expect, we're joined by a fellow traveller in the pursuit of anthropological knowledge to chat about her work, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. And our guest today is Sarah Pink, an anthropologist who describes what she does as, among other things, design anthropology. She's known for her innovative digital, visual, and sensory research and dissemination methodologies, which she puts to work in interdisciplinary collaborations, both with other scholars and with industry researchers, working in design, engineering, and creative practices in order to engage with contemporary issues and challenges. In this way, Sarah has studied laundry, big data, urban lighting schemes, wearable technology, documentary film, driverless cars, and a host of other topics. She's currently the director of the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, which produces critical interdisciplinary and international research regarding the social, cultural and experiential dimensions of the design, use and features of emerging tech. She is the author and or editor of countless books, I can't, I can't count them, including Atmospheres and the Experiential World with our recent guest, Shanti Sumitojo, Digital Ethnography, Principles and Practice, Doing Sensory Ethnography and Making Homes, Ethnography and Design, amongst others. So, Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So we always uh, want to start off by figuring out how you came to anthropology. Mm -hmm. Sort of it's partly a question about what is anthropology to you. Mm -hmm. It's partly a question about what has made of you an anthropologist. And that might be a career trajectory or it might be a chance to tell embarrassing anecdotes (laughs) uh, or to wax, (laughs) wax sort of existential, however you like. So what made you an anthropologist? Well, it's not too embarrassing, at least in first my first thoughts, but um, I became an anthropologist by accident, which I guess is the case often for anthropologists. When mm. I was at school, there was no anthropology. I didn't know what anthropology was, really. I actually only knew what anthropology was because I knew someone who'd studied it. I first went to university to study English literature, and I left after the first three months and took the rest of the year off. And then the next year, I went to university again to study American studies. And during my first year, I did four courses, and one of those was social anthropology. And um, one of my lecturers, I think it was, possibly it was her first ever job, was Henrietta Moore, who later went on to be a very important and influential professor of anthropology. So she took our, our seminars and she gave part of the lectures in our lecture series. She was an absolutely brilliant, very inspiring young lecturer at the time. And um, I was really, really, became very, really fascinated by anthropology. And I think partly because of the way that she taught it and the way that she encouraged us and our, our seminars were absolutely amazing, fascinating. So I changed my degree to anthropology. And, um, and I, I went from there. Oh, great. So a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are at the beginning of their training. Mm-hmm. So we've got a lot of early career researchers and, and HDR students. And then we've got a lot of students who are thinking about, it was anthropology yeah. for me. And so mm-hmm. that, I think that moment is going to resonate with a, a lot mm-hmm. of people who are listening. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that once I discovered anthropology, then there was just no turning back for me at all. Mm. I was really fascinated by the way in which anthropology enabled us to turn around the way that we thought about what people do, why they do it, how society might work. 
all, all of those questions for me just were a way of going under the surface of, of what we kind mm. of, what our initial assumptions might be to, to arrive at a deeper understanding. And I realised that actually one of the reasons why I'd been interested in English literature was because I was fascinated by the characters in the stories that I had been learning about before I went to university and in really understanding their perspectives on the world and that Mm -hmm. whole idea of being able to understand the world from a different perspective and and seeing that two different ways of understanding the same thing could exist in the world. And I Mm. carried that right through until I did my PhD research, which was about women and bullfighting. Um, because there I was initially fascinated by the idea that something like the bullfight could still exist and that there were groups of people who would be campaigning for animal rights who saw it from one perspective and that the bullfighting aficionados in in Spain and the fans of the bullfight would understand it from such a deeply different perspective. And I I wanted to get initially a deeper understanding of why that could happen. Mm. Because one of the things that you're known for is is your work writing about sensory Mm -hmm. methodologies. And it seems to be a kind of curious link there between novels especially, but Mm -hmm. also poetry and other kind of creative forms, being much more interested in, sure, fictional subjects, but fictional subjects, phenomenological experience and how that's bound up with their character. Yeah, that's fascinating actually, because I guess I'd never actually thought about that myself, but you're absolutely right that that idea of actually how we might kind of sense or feel the experience of being in the world of another person, be that a fictional character or a person who we've encountered and then imagined ourselves as mm. we imagine themselves, our, our experience themselves. So that's a way of doing our own fiction in, in a way. And we've mm. all kind mm. of, I guess, read about the idea that ethnography was fiction anyway, which is what was such a popular idea in the 1980s. Towards the end of my undergraduate degree, that those ideas became really influential mm-hmm. and, of course, had an amazing impact on what anthropology is today. So, yes, I think that was very important. And I've also been very influenced by the work of Paul Stoller, who I think is an amazing anthropologist, partly because of the work he did about sensory experience, but also because of the way he's written about his own experience and his experiences of illness and how they've enabled him to understand other people's worlds and and his own world. But also for his current role as a public anthropologist and his now his ability to say things that other anthropologists probably won't say in public and to be critical of governments and, and policy in, in such a way that I think is really, really important for somebody of his standing and, and position to do. So I think that there's an interesting connection in how we can feel our position and other people's position in the world and then take that much further towards mm. being a critique of society and, and governance and power structures as well. I think the sensory aspect is, for me, it's actually really fundamental underpinning in my work to actually be able to use our own experiences to understand how other people experience, but also to be able to ask other people to use their own experiences to bring forth interpretations of what they know and articulate them in such a way that they can tell us. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, I mean, you've worked on such a range of different methods and thoughts that are sort of pushing the boundary Mm. of what ethnography can be. I just wrote a list down of sensory and the visual and media production and so on. You've done digital work. Uh, now you're working on emerging technologies, mm-hmm. a, a range of different emerging technologies. And I was going to ask, what, looking back on it, what seems like a common thread that seems to have mm-hmm. knit all of those together? Yeah, I mean, I think there's that common thread of actually not wanting to work in the centre of anthropology, not wanting to participate in, in the reproduction of the mainstream because, well, what's the point? Um, <laughs> it's got its own... It's got, yeah. it's got yeah. plenty of people to worry yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the canon. And yeah, so you were never going to do a village yeah. ethnography. Yeah, so, no, I mean, I, I never wanted to please anthropologists at all. 
And I never worked in an anthropology department, so in a way I didn't really need to. So even when I was doing my PhD, I, I was drawing much more on sociology and sociology of the body and also on some cultural studies at the time, which was in the UK, British cultural studies. It was been very different from Australian cultural studies. And mm. it seems to have died, whereas Australian cultural studies hasn't, which is also interesting in, in a sense. But I was very interested at the time in actually drawing on other disciplines, even the cognate disciplines, and, um, to, to work in anthropology. But also, I guess, because I was working in visual anthropology to draw on, on media and, and film and cultural studies as well to provide understandings that weren't strictly anthropological. Part mm. of my agenda there was also to keep anthropology at the core of my work and to use anthropology as a critique of what some of those other disciplines weren't doing as well. Mm-hmm. So it was very much about creating an interdisciplinary route, which has meant I haven't published an awful lot in anthropology journals. And especially in recent years, one of my agendas is to publish as much as I can in journals of other disciplines so I can actually bring anthropology mm. to bear on the work of those disciplines in an interdisciplinary and collaborative way and to demonstrate that anthropology isn't just an insular discipline that Mm. reflects on itself and builds its own theory. And, you know, I I still find that when I read the contents page of traditional anthropology journals that I feel concerned by the insularity of of many of the articles. Anthropologists produce really important work working with small communities in in remote places and and focusing on those communities of people for long periods of time. And I I don't want to deny the importance of that, but what concerns me is that very much of the the deep quality of critical anthropology that is developed in those studies Mm -hmm. remains so utterly inaccessible to people who aren't anthropologists and who are not reading the mainstream anthropology journals. So Mm. what I think is important is to find ways to actually bring some of the insights from that kind of work into wider arenas so that they can do something that goes beyond what they do within the Mm. discipline. In doing that, yes, they become compromised in some way and you will lose some of what they add to the discipline because they have to be made accessible Mm. and they have to Mm -hmm. be made to communicate with other ideas. But I think that anthropology in itself does itself such a disservice by not enabling, not creating those routes through which what many anthropologists Mm. does can actually be understood outside the discipline. I've been thinking about this recently, having had a few different trips to the United States and Mm -hmm. seeing that, especially in the United States, anthropology is very much about the kind of reproduction of a certain sphere and what matters to those institutions and it's not doing public work. And so I was having this conversation recently and thinking, is this one of the silver linings of the impact Mm-hmm. kind of agenda that's reforming Australian institutions, Commonwealth institutions mm-hmm. kind yeah. of more generally. We have to prove our value. We have to start talking to other people. Yeah. Yeah. That has downsides, sure, but maybe it also has upsides. Yeah, and I wouldn't like to think that the impact agenda is driving it. I mean, I, I would like to mm. think that what's driving it is actually a new generation of anthropologists who actually believe we have a role to play in the world and, and that we can do so. Obviously, we all have to build careers as well and the career-building aspect of it and taking on board the impact agenda as part of that is, is so important you know, for any anthropologist who wants to participate and build a career in a university now. So I think there's some kind of deep ironies there in terms Mm. of the way that it's actually feeds into the neoliberal agenda in ways that we as anthropologists might want to contest. But on the other hand, it does enable us to be able to do something in the world which we hope might have beneficial impacts. Mm. 
I think there's some really interesting things there in terms of the trajectory of anthropology. And in 2005, I edited a book called Applications of Anthropology. And there's a great chapter in there by um, David Mills, a British anthropologist, which is about the history of British anthropology and how in the 19, I think it's the 40s, 50s, or that the leaders of UK anthropology then had refused to become involved in the applied or industry agenda. Industry mm, had approached mm. this, you know, anthropologists does not solve problems. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's interesting mm. is that I later started to think, well, yes, anthropology does and can and should get involved in these problem-solving agendas. But, you know, I now realise that actually that, at the time, was probably a useful way to think about it. But now it's not the way I think about it. I mean, I, was, I would argue as well now anthropology doesn't solve problems. And that's the whole point, you know, the, mm. the kind of the solutionism agenda, which is so much part of the public narratives that... Mm-hmm create the idea that for example in my work technologies can emerging technologies can solve societal problems is the problem in many ways and mm. we shouldn't be trying to solve problems at all that's the point because once you try and solve mm. problems any solution you create creates more problems and then you have this ongoing cycle where you just create solutions for problems that create more problems so that innovation agenda perpetuates itself and doesn't ultimately Mm. necessarily better the world or doesn't enable us to see that there's a different way to engage with what we might see as the problems in society. There's a very different yeah. understanding of the applied in applied mm-hmm. anthropology then. Yeah, so I, I think applied anthropology really needs to get beyond the idea that anthropology can solve problems mm-hmm. and to see anthropology as opening up possibilities. Mm. So for me, the whole idea there is for us to start thinking about well, how can anthropology actually create interventions in the way that things are going Mm. to open up new possibilities and and to enable the partners we collaborate with outside academia to actually think of the work they do to think of design and any other kind of interventions as actually creating new possibilities in the world and starting to think about futures Mm non-predictively because the solutions-based approach is a predictive approach as well so if we start to think about non-predictive futures and how can anthropologists become involved in thinking about futures in ways that deny the possibility of predicting what's going to happen next but actually considers the possibilities of what might happen next and explores possibilities and Mm. explores scenarios that may or may not play out that makes me want to ask three different questions at once Um, go on (laughs) (laughs) pile them up Well, you've talked quite a lot about an anthropology in the future tense, Mm -hmm. which I'm absolutely fascinated by. And I suppose I was going to ask you to say a little bit more about that and how that's different from, on the one hand, these regimes of prediction. Yeah. uh, And also whether that's different from the sort of future as cultural fact or these sort of imaginaries that we are writing about. If the anthropology of the future Mm -hmm. is, and an anthropology written in the future tense is not a parallel imaginary. This is one of the questions. I'll Mm -hmm. I'll leave it there and I'll I'll come Mm -hmm. back to the Mm -hmm. other ones. I mean, I think we can think about future and we can locate it in, in various different ways. You know, we can think about future as a kind of alterity or being kind of contiguous with the present, or we can think of future as only being imagined and only being possibilities. Not to put, I think it depends on why we're trying to think future at all in each of those cases and, and what we're trying to do with it. Mm-hmm. So I guess any project that was going to be about the future... You, probably as a starting point I would want to actually determine why I was trying to think about future Mm. and what I actually needed it to mean because future in itself is a thing that hasn't happened I mean do we want to call it you know the unknown or the not yet or the as yet to play itself out do we want to refer to it as a a mode of uncertainty Mm -hmm. or or do we want to refer to it as a mode of anticipation Mm. so there's there's really a lot to unpack when we start thinking about future one of the ways I like to think about it is actually as In terms of concepts, so what kind of anticipatory concepts can we use? So I've been Mm. thinking about concepts such as trust, 
anxiety, hope. Uncertainty is another one. How do we actually use those you know, mid-level concepts as a way of actually not necessarily articulating a theory of future, but articulating those kinds of holders that we can use through which to think about how we feel. I mean, and going back to the century, how we feel what might be about to happen next, because trust mm. and various modes of anticipation are actually things we feel rather than we necessarily always articulate verbally. Mm-hmm. I mean, thinking at that level of concepts as well is what takes me back to Henrietta Moore because um, her idea of the concept metaphor is really interesting, actually. What kind of concepts can we use that we can put the ideas of more than one discipline into? Mm-hmm. So trust is one of those, and it's one I've been thinking about a lot in, in that sense and writing about as well. So what's an anthropology of trust? Anthropologists have started to write about trust and thinking about think about what an anthropology of trust. And I've written about kind of the idea of a design anthropology of trust. But philosophers have written about trust as well. Interaction designers write about trust. Trust becomes something different within all of those different disciplines. Mm. I think that the core of an anthropological critique of trust is the idea of that trust is for me it's a feeling, and it's a feeling that is contingent on all of those other things around us. So how is trust generated? What kind of things might come into trust? It might be familiarity, might it be based in, might routines generate that sense of trust? Mm-hmm. But what does it mean to trust? Because it means more than something just being familiar. Because to need to trust, there needs to be perhaps something of the unknown within that set of contingent mm-hmm. circumstances for you to take that step forward, which means you've trusted because it's as mm-hmm. if there's a gap. Mm-hmm. So maybe trust is a little bit about getting past that gap. That's very different from the idea of trust as being interactional or transactional. Mm-hmm. So many approaches to trust actually see trust as being between two people, the trustor and the trustee, mm. or you think about public trust and trust in organisations. You know, again, you've got some personal thing that's trusting in another. But trust is, is not just interaction, it's not just between two entities, because nothing is just between two entities. And that's what we as anthropologists, I think, have quite clearly established mm. <laughs> you know, mm. it, it shouldn't, shouldn't need to reflect on years and years of mm. research to say that we've established that. We know that. So how do we actually unpick those contingent sets of circumstances in which trust emerges? You know, the interesting thing about anthropology is that we don't need to put things into two categories and say, what does this thing do to another thing? Because we know that because of our training, and this goes back to the value of traditional anthropology and our training in anthropology and in-depth fieldwork. When you do in-depth fieldwork, you're actually learning about circumstances that you're in and that are ongoingly emergent. And you do that by pulling together so many different things. You know, I think about my PhD research, and that's a great example. You know, I had all of my field notes that I would write every lunchtime and every night and two or three audio recorded interviews. I had a load of videotapes, I taped things from things I'd watched on television because the bullfight was manifested in so many dimensions of culture, you know, and I participated in a radio programme, I participated in interviews in a magazine, I wrote my own newspaper piece and I took photographs and I participated in, you know, in so many different things. So when you do ethnographic fieldwork like that, what you've got is a series of so many different things mm. of different affordances and different qualities and different categories of ways of knowing and as an anthropologist your analysis is very complex because it's very interpretative and you end up by bringing together this complexity of different types of materials and things and feelings and emotions Mm. and and notes and things that are written down and it's so different from doing a research project about two people are interacting and if you can detect trust in the way that Mm. they gesture or speak to each other 
which is the mode of analysis that other disciplines might actually put into action. So we have such a different approach. And I found this really interesting when I wrote my Doing Visual Ethnography and Doing Sensory Ethnography books. When I first wrote the Visual Ethnography book, it's the first methodology book I'd ever written, and I planned that I would have a chapter about analysis. Mm-hmm. And when I got to write it, I was thinking, no, how am I going to write this? You know, how do we do an analysis mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. anthropology? And that's when it occurred to me to actually start to write about these different types of materials and the different qualities and affordances and categories of material and thing that we would bring together as an anthropologist and how we actually then weave narratives and stories through mm. those materials. And, and then those stories are the, the stories that we tell and, and that we ultimately theorise and we build up into an mm. understanding of, of something. Yeah, I was just thinking as you're talking about that, that there's, you know, on the, on the one hand, you're working against the kind of logocentric model of research and the logocentric model of what research mm. becomes. Yeah. And it's also a very, very literary approach mm. to describing any phenomenon. I wonder if you have a sort of literary hero that's on your shoulder as you're doing that. <laughs> I don't think so because I don't ever get time to read literature. Uh Anymore. Oh, so, well, yeah, that hurts because it's true. The tragedies of the first yeah. calling is that it, yeah. Yeah. it really does die for <laughs> yeah, a lot of people. Mm. But, you know, I mean, as a child, I, I read lots and lots of Graham Greene and Evelyn War. Mm. Actually, all books that my dad had, and I just picked them up and, and read those. And I would read everything that I could from the, the same author. Mm. And I absolutely love the work of Oliver Sacks, so I know he mm. doesn't write fiction, but... Yeah, but that sort of synesthetic... Yeah, the, the uh, stories yep. that he tells. I mean, he tell, he's a storyteller in, in very much in mm. the way that he, he brings together the lives and the experiences of the, the people who participate in his work and who he's met. So where were we? Uh, well, let's, let's plunge into the <laughs> yeah. present. One of the kind of concept metaphors that's been going through our uh, conversation is emergence, and you're mm. the director of... Emerging Technologies Lab at Monash University. So I guess, first of all, tell us a little bit about what a lab is and does. We're all probably used to departments or Mm. maybe even faculties, Mm -hmm. but what's a a lab and what's your lab up to? So um, I like the concept of a lab because for me it actually is the idea of a smaller unit of people than a centre that has come together with a particular research focus. I actually started the series of labs when I was director of the Digital Ethnography Research Centre because I saw them as being a really useful size of unit to divide up a centre. As well, when I thought of the concept of the lab in that context, I also saw each of the labs there as being quite different from each other in terms of their purpose, their composition, their potential life, and how they might work. So for me, a lab can actually be pretty much anything in that we had the Data Ethnographies Lab, which was set up for the particular purpose of running a series of workshops around the relationship between ethnography and big data. Each workshop, we produced a position paper, which we wrote up. I usually wrote up the workshop into a Google Doc and then invited all the other participants to participate in the writing of it and to fill in the blanks. And usually somebody had videoed it as well, so we made a short video about it. And then as soon as we could, after the um, event, we launched a video and a position paper based on the deliberations of the workshop. And that was the work of the lab. For about a year and second year, we wound it down to a certain extent, and then we, we focused on getting some publications out from it. The other lab I really loved the work was, was the Design Plus Ethnography Plus Futures Lab, which I ran with Yoko Akama. We started that around 2013 or 14, and out of that we produced, again, a series of workshops, an e-book, a book, the Uncertainty and Possibility book, and a project. So it was, it was a really, really fruitful lab, and there we just really worked to bring together design and ethnography and futures research and to create something that was new in that field in a way that we really wanted to blend our practice so mm. it was not either 
anthropology or design, that we actually really, really wanted to try to make those areas of practice and theory kind of seat to each other, mm-hmm. which was really interesting in terms of the work that we did, but also really interesting when we brought together designers and anthropologists to see the extent to which they were able to do that as well. So those are two labs that I think inspired me then to think about my next project as being the level of a lab, and that's what I really wanted to do, because I feel that through a lab you can actually work on a set of ideas which are pertinent to the moment. And for me, the idea of an emerging technologies lab was really a focus of the work that I was doing, but not the work I was doing alone, work that I was collaborating on with a series of different people, Mm. most of whom have come with me as the new colleagues in the lab or are joining the lab as adjunct members from other universities around the world. Mm. It's very much about crystallising a research focus that I felt had already started to develop. And the science for me was that this was an area of research that really needed to be pushed forward and to be given an identity, which is another reason why I wanted to actually give it a label in the lab. Mm. So the idea of emergence then is at the core of the work that I was doing with Yoko around uncertainty and design ethnography futures concept. So it was already central to my work before I started to focus on um, emerging technologies to this extent. So most of my work over the last six or seven years has been looking at technologies in some way or other, but the emerging technologies work really started to come to the fore when I started to do work on self-driving cars and other emerging technologies since then. So the concept of emerging technologies then was quite fascinating to me because I didn't think when I started to do the research about self-driving cars that I'm now moving to work on emerging technologies. Self-driving cars are considered to be an emerging technology. I mean, curiously, Mm -hmm. it's around 2015 that they were considered to be the most hype emerging technology, which was, Mm -hmm. I guess, just before I started to focus in that area. It was once I'd started to work in that area that the concept of an emerging technology started to capture my attention. And I started to wonder what that really meant. So for me, the concept of emergence, I would say, is at the centre of design anthropology and the work of Rachel Charlotte Smith and Ton Otto, whose work is also focused in, in this area. So I started to wonder what is an emerging technology and how does that concept of emergence and the idea of technologies emerging actually map onto design anthropological mm. understanding mm-hmm. of emergence. And clearly, emerging technologies are defined differently within that technology sphere and a good place to look for those kinds of definitions are actually in the wording of things like the MIT technology review and the scientific American kind of top 10 breakthrough Mm, technology mm -hmm. or maybe it's the other way around whichever those two different (laughs) publications say they really see you know these technologies as being poised to to have an impact on society yeah there's a kind of influence our culture yeah. Mm-hmm. to that version yeah. of emergence. Yeah. It's not emergence that mm. might fail, it's yeah. emergence that... Yeah. Mm. They are emerging and they are poised at the edge of being launched into society where they will have the impact. So the, the ongoingness of emergence, it's not really about the ongoingness of emergence, it's about the emergence being that state of emerging is mm. not going to be permanent because they will emerge <laughs> and um, and they will emerge they will be activated into society and the narrative goes that then as we were saying before they will solve societal problems mm-hmm. so emergence sounds like one of those concept metaphors then that conjures a future yeah and as a design anthropologist and as a anthropologist of the future mm-hmm. what sort of a future do you write in conjunction with that sense of emergence mm-hmm. are you are you writing against it are you writing with you it or alongside redefine, it you have to redefine emergence to start thinking about emerging technologies as actually things which will have that quality of being ongoingly emergent mm. in society 
which if we stop thinking of society or everyday life as a landing site for completed products we can start thinking about the idea that that happens anyway but if we were to design technologies with the acknowledgement that they won't be landing in everyday lives where they will be appropriated but actually thinking they will be landing in in everyday lives whereby they will become something Mm. in relation to what people are they're already open to people doing new things with them that would enable them to continue to emerge as something altered from their state when they did emerge or when they came onto a market. I think there's some very different ways of thinking about that. You know, I mean, more recently I've been reading much more from STS and and thinking about how those arguments, I think, are quite coherent with and and map nicely onto some of the arguments in, in STS about the different modes of innovation that are imagined by STS scholars but I guess what I find lacking in STS takes us back to that training in anthropology and the Mm -hmm. idea of the nature of the fieldwork that we as anthropologists would actually put together to really understand those ongoing processes of emergence and what we might think of as modes of growth and repair in society. I guess it's a small field but a very fascinating focus on maintenance and repair in STS What's fascinating about that is this idea that people continue to repair and maintain and do things to things once things are in society with them. And of course, you know, I couldn't disagree with that. But what I'm really interested in is, well, you know, how do those processes actually really play out in the contingencies of everyday life? And Mm. how do we go beyond the idea that we acknowledge that that happens and actually understand the significance of the specific ways that it happens in terms of the way that things play out? Mm. I think one of the other interesting things that I've found in my most recent reading, actually, and I've been talking to an STS scholar about some of this recently as well, is the fascination of STS scholars, especially recent work around the um, self-driving car, is their fascination with the experiment and also their fascination with failure, the way they use that to reflect back onto institutions. And that's perhaps something that anthropologists are not quite as good at, or maybe it's not that we're not good at it, but maybe we don't always remember to do that mm-hmm. in our reflections because we've become so involved with reflecting on what's happening in everyday life and what people are doing. I think there's some very interesting work that we can learn from in that field as well in terms of their understandings of how institutions manage socio-technological systems Mm. and how those things come together at that level whereby technologies are introduced in society and how do institutions engage with those and what are the processes of governance and regulation Mm -hmm. which we don't necessarily often look at quite as much as anthropologists and when we can't do everything and that might be also a case for thinking about Actually, how do we draw on people who work in those fields and collaborate with them, given that that's what their discipline does, Mm. rather than seeking to say, oh, we can do that too. As somebody who does (laughs) science and technology studies, I feel like those worlds of regulation and and the governance of technology are almost like purposively complex and boring. (laughs) It's part of how they're built is to allow for the reproduction of certain kinds of expertise, Mm -hmm. a way to kind of keep not just anthropologists, but also users mm-hmm. from understanding necessarily yeah. the structures under yeah, which yeah. they... Mm. Why a phone is how it is, how it gets to travel internationally, mm. you know, or, or whatever mm. the piece of technology yeah. is, a self-driving car. Or, yeah, so if yeah. anthropology is... Or if you've come back around to an anthropology that doesn't solve problems, mm-hmm. how do you talk to them? The problem solvers, the regulators? The regulatory people. Yeah. I wonder if you, if you can tell us about specific collaborations where you found that, that relationship worked well. For me, that's one of the big challenges. And I think that there are ways that we can engage. I'm not sure if doing so on the basis of having done ethnographic research 
is the only way that mm. anthropologists can do that. I think it may be a little bit about engaging our kind of critical work in those environments in, in different ways. Mm. Um, but I guess the one area I would reflect on is my work on occupational safety and health which I've looked at in the construction industry and healthcare and um, logistics context. Always working in teams with safety specialists and people from various different areas. But I think our work has been able to have some influence there. And certainly had conversations with people from industry who are really interested in our ideas. I think in the case of occupational safety and health, it's an area where regulation is very important because the regulatory frameworks and the guidelines are absolutely essential for organisations to be able to demonstrate that they're producing frameworks through which their employees, people who work in their organisations, can be safe. And without those frameworks, they can't prove that they're doing that and they can't legitimise what they're doing. So there's a very complex situation, you know, when an anthropologist then goes in there and says, oh, but, you know, really people find their own ways to stay safe. You need to acknowledge those and allow people to do things that might look like they're breaking the rules because that enables them to stay safer. So it's complex Mm -hmm. to go into an organisation and say that because however much they might take on board what you say, they're also stuck within this risk mitigation framework, which they're kind of often powerless to be able to get out of. And safety regulations do stop people from getting from dying, getting killed at work. You know, the construction industry is one of the most dangerous places that you can possibly work in. Hmm. But, you know, I think in that context, what I'm really interested in encouraging is actually just more bottom-up investigation of what people really do and using that as a way to inform good practice. I'm part of the European Association of Social Anthropologists, Future Anthropologies Network, which I was one of the founders of a few years ago. And we do consider ourselves, you know, to be a radical movement within anthropology that wants to change the discipline and to create an anthropology that specifically works with futures and focuses on futures and interrogates how we can research futures and what we can do and how we can intervene by Mm. doing so. So in, in that context, I think there's a case for thinking a different anthropology that does research around the possible and mm. works with those future-focused concepts and asks questions that an older anthropology would have been able to ask and wouldn't have asked and that writes into the future in such a way that it also has a different ethics and a much more interventionist ethics, but an ethics mm. that has to do away with anthropology's moral stance, which is quite confronting in, in some ways because you know in the 1980s we were really confronted with this idea of anthropology could not be written in the present, in the continuous present, because of the tendency that that would have then to crystallise the participants in our research, who we still called informants at the time, into a continuous present in which they were stuck and they were trapped and they were fixed. And that, that's an objectifying stance. After that then, the idea was that we would always write our anthropology into the past. And photography and film were also very interesting for me from that perspective because a photograph is only ever of what has already happened. A photograph can also feel like it's stuck in the present, but it's always Mm. what just happened since you've taken it. And Mm. and there's a much more direct way, I guess, of thinking about that than you do in terms of your field notes, even though the field notes are just the same. So everything that happens to us as anthropologists has already happened. So when we write about anything, then we always write about it into the past. And the same goes for photographs. And that's the problem with objectifying captions on anthropological photographs, you know, saying Mm. this person does this or these people do this. No, they don't. They did it in that moment when the photograph was taken. So then how do you use a photograph as a kind of door into explaining a situation or circumstance that was experienced in the past? Mm. So for me then, earlier on in my work, before I started to think about futures so much, then this idea of 
using film and photography and, and writing as a way of actually telling these stories about what had already happened and generating understandings through those kind of fitted very well together with my agenda for a visual anthropology and a sensory anthropology and, and all of that work because I felt that the visual and video and photography was a really, really good way of creating that and um, substantiating that anthropology that was about what had happened. And part of my agenda then, especially working in visual anthropology, was to try to really secure that for visual anthropology as well. And it was part of that moment as well of validating visual anthropology. And I think visual anthropology is not marginalised now. There was that really interesting movement, but now there's a case for actually moving on into thinking that anthropology into an anthropology of what hasn't happened yet. Hmm. So again, we evade the continuous present, although the continuous present is where we are. For me, the idea that our present is continually slipping over into the past, which is, I guess, at the core Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. previous anthropology, but also we're continually slipping over from our present into our futures. Mm -hmm. So while our anthropology is slipping behind us, if you like, then we're slipping forward somehow. Mm. And if what we want to think about is not in that forward space that we're not in yet, you know, we're saying before, where is the future? Mm. It's in this moment that we can potentially imagine as the possibility something not yet known or not known or, or always eternally unknown but, mm. but that we can sense then how do we engage with that as anthropologists and how do we sense what might be going to happen and then how do we articulate that in our writing or in our photography or in our film mm. and how do we articulate that with our research participants so do we try to invent future scenarios with people and, and then enact them and try to understand how they might feel Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, how do we sense what hasn't happened yet? I, for me, that's a really interesting way in, in terms of my own experiences in my everyday life. But then how do we engage with that with research participants? And so a lot of my work has been about research participants reenacting things they've done in the past to try to access those embodied memories that you can only ever sense again when you feel them. So how do we actually then enact our possible futures and use those experiences to sense what it might feel like? to be in those futures and to ask other people to do that and then draw together what they can communicate about what they've felt Mm. to actually think about collectively sensed or felt futures, what might be the patterns that we can detect. And obviously we will collectively sense our futures in some ways because we have many of the same resources as other people in certain contexts and circumstances that we will all bring together to collectively sense futures so the ideas of collective history and so we, we can think about collective forgetting collective remembering and then how do we think about collective mm. imagining so when i initially heard you talk about futures anthropology i was imagining it as a mode of writing or representation and mm-hmm. i was sort of asking myself yeah. Does it look like writing science fiction? Mm, uh, does mm. it look like writing poetry or, or writing sort of aspirationally? Uh, to hear you describe it now, it's, it's, it's just as much a, a methodology. Mm-hmm. It's just as much a mode of engaging with your participants. Yeah. An imaginative mm-hmm. work rather than kind of strictly descriptive work. Yeah. Because I can see how for anthropologists, you know, it's a high risk gambit to write about the future. It's, mm-hmm. much, it's a much lower risk, although it still comes with many risks. To represent the past yeah yeah because you've got all these descriptions and, and all these different kinds of texts to draw upon to fill out your picture of the past mm. and it's over anyway so you know people can be offended but whatever whereas the future you're potentially participating in the foreclosure or opening up of mm-hmm. potentials mm-hmm. in your descriptions yeah. do you see it as riskier well i think yes because we can't claim to say oh but i'm saying something that i know has happened and this is how i know we're actually saying, well, this is about something that I don't know if it will happen. 
and I'm implicating these people in it, mm. especially if you write about people. Mm. So you're actually implicating people in unknown future, which is risky because you don't actually know what the contingent circumstances around it could or would be. So in, in that sense, that's where it becomes problematic for an anthropological ethics and, and also for an institutional ethics. Mm. And, and it's also one of the ironies, there's the impact agenda, you know, constantly urged to have impact in the world. And by an impact agenda that's attached to a risk mitigation ethics <laughs> agenda, it's completely forgotten that the impact that we have in the world has, uh, has, has many risks yep. that it can't yeah. mitigate at all. Mm. So, um, yeah, that, that's for me is, is quite an interesting irony. Which kind of brings us to another risky future, which is that we all live now in the shadow of climate change and mm. the prospect of compound extinctions, potentially even our own. Uh, what does it mean to you to do futures anthropology in the Anthropocene or whatever we want to call it, in, with these you know, abundant horizons of entropy, of closure? Does the spectre of end times haunt your work? Is it present? Is it something that's built in? I do get this weird sense sometimes that my work, especially my work about you know, technology or artificial intelligence and automated decision making, stuff that we're talking about a lot at the moment, and thinking about you know what might happen when these emerging technologies become part of an as yet unknown world where they will be surrounded by a load of other emerging technologies which we're not quite sure how they will emerge either and yeah climate change and human futures and other species i do get this weird sense that we are bizarrely suspended in trying to interpret small aspects of a very big and complex and problematic scenario and, mm. and in a sense I don't want to say there's a pointlessness to any of it because I don't think there is and we've got to all keep busy while we're here <laughs> um, trying, thinking that we're possibly doing something mm. um, while we wait for the apocalypse to come which is interesting, you know, mm. given that one of the things that we're really working against in my lab is precisely the utopian dystopian narratives mm. that are mm -hmm. cast by anybody whether they are kind of Anthropocene <laughs> narratives mm. that are also kind of concerned with possible radically terrible futures and dystopias, which we could well be potentially facing. I think the complexity of any route towards fixing any of this is just so unnerving to mm. confront. And sometimes paralyzing too. Yeah, sometimes yeah. It, even if the mm. even if the apocalypse mm. is yeah. around the corner, it's not necessarily the most productive way to think about it. <laughs> I'm thinking of bumper stickers that say enjoy your apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. uh, or there's a whole genre now of speculative fiction that's called hope punk. Oh wow. And it's sort yeah. of imagining all right, let's say that there is a cataclysmic future, but one lives in it. How does yeah. one imagine to live? Your work is lots of fun to read. Yeah. It sounds like you're having fun. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, yeah. That's kind of reading a little bit into it. It's sort of implicit there, but even in the way it's presented, it's interested, the technology, it's not quite the sort of vibrant matter mm -hmm. per se, but it, there's a vibrancy to it yeah. in a way that's not present in the futures of the, the apocalyptic Anthropocene or whatever. Mm. I'm also, I guess, at the most concerned with futures that might be about 40 years away. Oh, right. And, and yep. less, I guess, often. Um, in the specificities of the kind of work I'm doing when I mm. think of certain technologies I'm thinking about, which doesn't mean I'm not concerned with further futures and wouldn't like to think about them. But in terms of what we can imagine, any, imagine kind of doing anything about or making anything better, mm. I think there are certain things that we can do and ways we can intervene. But just within those kinds of 10, 30, 40 year futures, when we look at contemporary politics and power holders and inequalities and that level of it even, as anthropologists, what power do we actually really have to do anything about any of that 
so maybe we do have, you know, we have a role to play in, in showing and revealing those complexities and those problems and we have a role to play in intervening as much as we can and for me it's about trying to intervene to change the narratives about mm. solutions and problems and if I can make a contribution there then I'd be really pleased but I see that as a big task and challenge and a big ambition for a small lab and I don't mm. see it as the work only of our lab I see it as the work of everybody we're connected with all over the world mm. so I think there's potentially a, a small dent there and I guess you know the wider and much much longer larger scale future as a species what value do we really have to the world, given what we've done to it so far? Um, <laughs> so, different to our presence. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, are we worth saving? You know, mm. as individuals, yes, of course, we think we're worth saving and we think humans mm. are worth saving because we believe, I would hope, that everything is, is worth saving. But mm. I think there's important questions there around our importance mm. as humans and potentially our arrogance to believe that we maybe are important or will the world just sort of shrug us off like so many fleas hanging on can we save the world as humans and are we Mm. that relevant in the saving or continuation of the world Mm. Uh, what would a world be like post-human and um, what species would survive on it and would that be a better or worse world Mm. for us of course it would we would have judgments to make about that Well, look, thanks very much for joining us. I think that's a fantastic point upon which to end the futures, the optimistic futures. How possible end. Yep. (laughs) How glorious it might be. Uh, So today we've been speaking with Sarah Pink. Thank you very much. Director of the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University. And if you'd like to learn more about Sarah's work, you can find her at Monash University or follow her on Twitter at, at Pinky Digital. And Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is produced by me, David Giles and my friend Timothy Neal with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in gentle friendship with the American Anthropological Association. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Giles, and Tim is at TDNeal. And if you enjoyed the episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs>